Well, my name's Cameron, and uh, I am one of the pastors here. And before we say anything, we should say um, we're going to be in the book of Nahum. So uh, all of you, I'm sure, have that one on speed dial as you well-worn pages there in the book of Nahum. But honestly, table of contents is great. It's one of the minor prophets, a few books from the end of the Old Testament. Go ahead and turn there as we continue through our series on finding Jesus in the minor prophets. But uh, yeah, just a second to introduce myself. My name's Cameron. I'm one of the pastors here. At the moment, uh, I, I help oversee the community groups for the church, uh, but we are in a process of transition even right now toward uh, my wife and I, and hopefully a lot of you guys, uh, toward planning a church in Northeast Portland, a Door of Hope Church. Uh, and so uh, there's going to be more information coming out about that. Probably this fall, we'll have a big kind of here we go. Here's the vision. Here's the push. We have our answers for your questions. Uh, but in the meantime, especially if you live in Northeast, just be praying about that, thinking about that. Is that something you might want to consider doing? And uh, in the next few months, we're going to start. We're going to start pumping the gas. Is that a? That's a saying. People say that. Yeah. We'll start pumping the gas on that. Usually, people say pump the brakes. We will pump the gas. Um, we should pray. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we love you, and we thank you for this time. Uh, we, uh, we just acknowledge, Lord, that several, several of the things we find in your word, and including this morning in, in Nahum, um, they're hard. Lord, this is a heavy book. Uh, the, the things that it addresses um, are challenging, and they're painful, uh, but, but Lord, you've given them to us for a reason, and, and we do believe that they reveal as well uh, who you are, what you're about, and we just pray, Lord, that we would understand them rightly, and not just understand it for the knowledge, but that we could live differently, Lord, follow you more closely, understand your grace toward us more fully. So we need you for that. We ask that you would just guide us, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, okay. This is my first son. That's Nahum. That's my first son. Um, his name is Lane. He is now a almost three-year-old dude who, if, if he's at the service right after, you'll see him just like sprinting circles around the pews. Uh, super sweet little guy. But when he was born almost three years ago, uh, we've got some, some kind of startling news. Uh, you know, it's, it's customary when a new baby's born for a pediatrician to come in when you're in the hospital, kind of look him over. And they flagged something on him. The, the, the pediatrician showed us there was this little dimple on his lower back. Uh, all, it, it was kind of imperceptible to us. I don't think we ever would have noticed it. But he said, this little dimple here may be nothing, uh, but it, it could be uh, an issue with his, with his spine. So we said, oh, okay. Uh, and so they said, well, what we need to do is we need to order ultrasound. So we ordered an ultrasound, and the results of that were the same. Uh, they, they said, based on this ultrasound, it looks like uh, he could have what's called a tethered spinal cord. And we said, oh, okay. So the next thing we need to do is put you in touch with a specialist, and that specialist uh, will be able to kind of figure out what, what further tests need to be run to, to see what this is and what we should do. So... Uh, a couple months after that, we met with a, a specialist, a, a pediatric spinal surgeon, and, uh, and, and he said, yeah, I'm, I've looked at the ultrasound. I think what we need to do 
uh, is, is have an MRI done. And, and we don't like to do this before kids are three months old because it's obviously dangerous to put a baby on anesthesia. Uh, and, but we're going to do an MRI, and so we'll really be able to see what's going on there, and then we can, we can make a plan. So uh, when he just, got just over three months, we scheduled that. He went in, had an MRI, and long, long story short, the story was, yeah, he's, he's got a tethered spinal cord. Um, which I, I know that many, there are probably many doctors sitting in this room, and I've probably already bungled some of the, some of the terminology and categories. Uh, but essentially, there's like, the, the image I remember he said, there's like this little, almost, it's almost like a ligament that's attached from, on the bottom of the spinal cord, attached somewhere, I'm not sure. And uh, fortunately for Lane, this is the kind that really, the, the only thing they do to operate is just go in and snip it. And it's like a rubber band, just like losing its tension and going back to normal. So they said, we, we need to do that. We need to do that sooner than later. Because um, it doesn't appear to be causing him any problems right now, but, but it could. It could down the road. So, and some of you in this room, I, I'm looking around. Uh, I see Sam and Krista. Um, so you, we, we shared this. We were freaking out about this. We were super worried, super stressed. Uh, the anesthesia alone was freaking us out, let alone a spinal surgery on a four-month-old. Um, and some, several of you, to this day, are still like asking, how's Lane, how's his back, everything healthy, and it's so sweet. But we, we had a group of friends over to our house, and we just laid hands on little baby Lane. We prayed for him. We prayed for the surgery. The, the, I believe it was the night before he went in for his operation. And... Um, well, I've kind, of, I've kind of bungled my chance to do this. I got into the heavy stuff. I'll just show you. We'll just take a pause here to show you this next picture. Uh, that's Lane. Uh, his first Halloween, I made him a Bane costume <laughs> from The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, and that was the mask that I made out of clay molded onto a pacifier. Uh, the, the man who broke the bat, uh, which is a weird choice for a baby, uh, but we, we went for it. Um, now I have inserted that into this serious story. Uh, back to serious. Um, <laughs> so that's Lane. He's sweet. And the night before, we prayed, and then the next day, we, we went in for this, uh, for this surgery. And just... just <laughs> That moment of leading up to the moment where the doctors and the nurses come and take him was, was just so charged and so heavy. Uh, I, I remember specifically us like being teary-eyed and crying and praying and thinking and talking and just, just holding and snuggling this little baby so close. And then the doors opened and the nurses came in and they said, okay, it's, it's time. And just the pain and the fear of just handing this little guy over to them and just trusting and praying, God, please protect him uh, through this surgery. And as we went back, you know, we went back to the waiting room and they've got this little screen up on the wall that has different surgeries that are happening and kind of a, you're kind of getting a live update of the status, just in very general terms. And just glued to that thing, seeing every little update. Okay, he's pre-op, now he's in the operation and then... You know, we got the, then it appears operation complete or something like that. And, you know, you feel a little bit of sigh of relief. But even still, you don't have an update. You're just waiting. You're just waiting. What happened? Is he going to be okay? Is he going to make it through this? And 
the fear, the fear that we felt in that moment was just so palpable and we're just sitting there craving and waiting for, for news and specifically for good news. And I remember the moment it happened, they wheeled him out on a little stretcher and here's what he looked like. He's got, isn't that so sweet? His hands bandaged up because that's where his IV was and he's, he's out and he's got his little arm rolls and they just wheeled him out. And I think before that, they had told us he was, the, op, the surgery went great. But I remember that moment when they wheeled him out and they said, he did great. Everything looks perfect. He's going to be fine. And just, just the rush of that good news, just the power of that in that moment, I will never forget. It was like water coming to a person dying of starvation in the desert is what that felt like. That feeling... That feeling of just desperately needing good news is kind of what the book of Nahum is all about. Uh, Nahum's an odd book. It was, it was written sometime around 650 BC, uh, and it's addressed to the nation of, it's addressed to the kingdom of Judah. So at this point, uh, Israel, the kingdom of Israel is divided into two kingdoms, a kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And Assyria had come and taken Israel into captivity, and Judah was sort of watching, and they were sort of bearing the brunt of Assyria's uh, violence in the land, and Nahum comes with this prophecy that essentially says, hey, Judah, I have good news. The bully, the evil oppressor, this violent nation, Assyria, is about to meet its end. And that's the book. That's the book. It's about God's people taking comfort from God's coming judgment against the evil nation of Assyria. And friends, that's heavy. That is heavy, heavy stuff. But we're going to look, work through this thing by highlighting three important themes. I'll just lay them out here, then we'll get into them. The first is, what happens when darkness descends? The second is, the terrifying goodness of God. And the third is, a promise of peace. So first of all, when, when and that's, that's when, not if, darkness descends. So the time of, at the time of Nahum, the entire region was being terrorized by this nation, Assyria. Uh, historians call this time, uh, what do they call it, the uh, Neo-Assyrian Empire. And they had basically full control over all of Mesopotamia, part of Anatolia, all of the Levant, and Egypt. Um, and here's what Assyriologist Georges Cantonal writes about Assyria. Just, just I don't know, we're going to read a, an academic historian, but just, just try to track with me here. He says, the king's throne, this is Assyria's king, would be set up before the gates of the city, and the prisoners would be paraded before him, led by the monarch of the captured town who would undergo the most agonizing torture, such as having his eyes put out or confinement in a cage until the king of Assyria set a term to his long-drawn agony. The king Sargon had the defeated king of Damascus burned alive before his eyes. The wives and daughters of the captured king were destined for the Assyrian harems, and those who were not of noble blood were condemned to slavery. Meanwhile, the soldiery had been massacring the population and brought the heads of their victims into the king's presence where they were counted up by the scribes. 
Not all the male prisoners were put to death, for the boys and craftsmen were led into captivity where they would be assigned to the hardest tasks on the royal building projects, where the swamps which cover up so much of Mesopotamia must have caused an enormously high rate of mortality. The remainder of the population were uprooted and sent to the other end of the empire. Archaeologists found this temple inscription that describes what happened when one of the kings uh, captured another city, one of the Assyrian kings, and he says basically he built a pillar outside the gate and he impaled several of the captives on the outside. He, he built a pillar around some of them so that they were just entrapped and left to starve and then they flayed the skin off the backs and strung it across the pillar. Assyria was not only a violent nation, but it was a scourge on the entire ancient Near East. They were respected and feared, but even more so, they were hated. They were deeply hated by the surrounding nations, by the nations that they subjugated. One king was marked for his cruelty toward those whom he defeated. we know this, like, one of the instances of his cruelty is immoralized in this little tablet or something they found that depicts him with a rival king with a dog chain through the man's jaw and making him sleep in cages. This is Assyria. It's evil. It's oppressive. It's bloodthirsty. It's sadistic. Some historians call it the world's first empire. These are the bad guys. So let's just, let's just pause there. How are you guys doing? That's heavy. And I, don't, I, I really don't mean to just be a shock jock up here reading you the most lurid details from Assyria, but for, for the message of Nahum to hit you correctly like it would have hit the Israelites, the people of Judah, uh, I think we need to really understand who these people were and what kind of influence they had on all the people that were around them. But the, make no mistake, this is extremely dark. Extremely dark. This is one of the most extreme examples of the reality that the Bible affirms over and over again, which is that the pain and suffering is inevitable in our fallen world. The Bible's clear-eyed about several things, but it's clear-eyed about the fact that to live in this world is good, to to live in this world is a blessing, but also, at the same time, to live in this world is to suffer. It is to suffer. Not every character in the Bible encounters a villain of the scale and magnitude of ancient Assyria, but they all suffer. Not every form of evil and cruelty is this sort of like skin-slicing, chill-inducing flavor. My book club right now is reading C.S. Lewis's uh, That Hideous Strength. Have you read that that book? Yeah, a few of you. Uh, And it just, it it does such a good job of depicting evil, not not first of all like this, but but in the form of of bureaucracy and mundaneness. Evil and sources of suffering take on all kinds of forms. But we have to remember that as Christians, we follow a suffering servant, a crucified king, an executed Messiah. Tradition tells us all of his closest followers 
closest, earliest followers died fairly vicious deaths because of their obedience to him and, and faithfulness to proclaim him. Any system of theology that doesn't lead its, its people to expect serious suffering in this life isn't reading the same scripture or following the same Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 9, Paul says, We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. It's pretty comprehensive in his description of what suffering is like. Some of this suffering will be directly linked to your discipleship to Jesus. Jesus said, if they hate me, they'll hate you. But some of it is just in that category of sort of indiscriminate general suffering that's just, it just comes with trying to make, it, make our way through this world. We probably all experience this sometime or another. It might look like suffering, just profound loneliness, disconnection from people. Sometimes it takes the form of, of abuse, sometimes from a trusted person. Sometimes it takes the form of, of developing a life-threatening illness. You might lose your health. You might lose your wealth. Your marriage might deteriorate. You might be laid off work. You might not know where you're going to sleep tonight. You might find yourself under the boot of an unjust government. You or your loved one might be the victim of random violence or just some incomprehensible accident. The thing is, some of you in this room are in the middle of something like this right now. Right now. We all see it. We all suffer it. And we all have been, and here's the the saddest thing the Bible reaffirms, we all have been and will continue to be accomplice to it if we refuse to give Jesus every square inch of our hearts. So that's a heavy theme, but I think that's one of the primary themes of Nahum. Darkness comes. But it's not the only theme. (laughs) Thank God, right? It's not the only theme. Our second theme emerges out of 2.13, and it contains five of the most terrifying words one can hear. These first five words of 2.13, sorry, Kevin, I skipped on you. Um, Those first five words, behold, I am against you. You don't want to hear that from the God of the universe. It's terrifying. It's terrifying, the all-powerful creator God declaring, I am against you. In some ways, this is the central theme of the book. If you read the whole book, you'll mostly see an iteration on this theme of God declaring to Nineveh, to Assyria, I'm against you. I'm about to end you. And here's the logic of it, though. God, our omniscient God, knows everything, He perfectly knows every detail of Assyria's violence, doesn't he? He he knows intimately the sheer terror that they've inflicted on all the nations that are under their influence. 
he's been able to count every single tear that's been shed as a result of their actions. And in this, in this book, God's showing up to say, I'm here and I'm drawing a line and what you're doing will not be allowed to progress one step further. This is a theme that's come up several times in this series. You can't discuss the minor prophets without discussing its major themes, which are, in part, the judging justice of God. As we've discussed before, a God who will execute judgment, bring about justice, this is a deeply disturbing concept for many of us. But the question quickly becomes, once, once you get a clear-eyed look at someone like Assyria, the question you have to ask yourself is, what would you have God do? When you hear the cries and the screams that they've produced, what's God to do? What is, what is he, what does a loving, gracious, giving, self-sacrificing God do in this scenario? when there's this force at work in the world. There's a Croatian theologian named Miroslav Volf. It's got this amazing book. It's called Exclusion and Embrace. Uh, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of dense. It's dense, but it's worth the read. And, and Volf's uh, family and friends uh, all grew up under serious, serious oppression. They saw rival nations come in and I'll, 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 spare the, I'll, I'll spare the descriptions at this point, but let's just say their families were, were, were brutally savaged. And uh, he argues powerfully in this book that though it's common to think that the idea of a judging God kind of fuels violence amongst that religion's adherents, he says it's actually the opposite. He says only someone in the quiet of a suburb would think that. He says, if you go and actually talk to people who've had their families taken from them, their friends' throats slit before them, and you tell them, God doesn't judge, he's just loving, therefore don't, don't be violent. He says, that doesn't work. He says, it's actually the only thing that will prevent someone in that scenario from saying, I'm taking my sword and I'm going to get mine, is the idea that there is a good God who knows perfectly and impartially, who says, I will set it right, I will judge, and also who commands his people not to. You'll notice in Nahum, he's, God is not telling Judah to go get their swords and go take down the Assyrians. He could have done that, but he didn't. He says, leave it to me. I will do this and I will do it justly. The Christian God is the kind of God who is this and who does this. So the second theme, it's centered on the God who has committed himself to stopping the propagation of all evil, sin, death in the world because he loves the world and he loves all the people he's made and placed in it. And if he's gonna love this person, that means at some point he has to stop this person by any means necessary. So this brings us to our third theme, the promise of peace. Here's our, here's our M. Night Shyamalan moment right here, all right? Here's, a, here's our twist, twist ending. Uh, we've already mentioned the name, but we haven't highlighted it. Nahum has been speaking about Assyria, yes, but he's been directing it specifically at the, at the nation's capital city, which is Nineveh. 
Anybody recognize the name Nineveh? Shout something out at me. Jonah. We just looked at Jonah two weeks ago. So this is fascinating. This is fascinating. Just a couple weeks ago, Josh walked us through Jonah, which is a story of God's prophet refusing to carry God's message of love and repentance and salvation to this pagan nation. But do you kind of get it now? Do you feel that? Can you feel what Jonah might have been feeling in that moment? God, you want me to go preach repentance, an offer of repentance and salvation to Nineveh. Those guys. And God says, yes. He deeply cares about them. God deeply cares about them. In some ways, Nahum is like a sequel to Jonah because we're about 100 years later and now God has finally said, time's up. The time of grace has ended and it's time for the good of the world to stop you guys. In some ways, Nahum gets to be the prophet that Jonah wanted to be, didn't he? Like Jonah wanted to be the fire and brimstone guy, but God's like, no, you're gonna be the grace guy. He's like, I've got Nahum. (laughs) I've got Nahum in the wing. He's gonna go, go drop the really scary message. But these two stories work really, together, really well together to illustrate these two sides of God's love, don't they? If you read one in isolation from the other, you miss the bigger picture. Jonah depicts God slow to anger, long-suffering, patient mercy, even on the worst oppressor in the ancient world. God still desires that they would repent and be saved and come into humble relationship with him and begin to be a blessing to the world. But the Nahum captures that other flip side, which is God's protective, sin and death limiting, boundary making justice. You could almost say Jonah's declaring, God loves your enemy. And Nahum is declaring to Israel, God loves you. We need both. And it's verse 15, chapter 1, that kind of pushes pushes our our perspective out a little bit further this direction. Let's just read 12 through 15. It says, Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. So that's Nineveh. That's Assyria. Though they're at the height of their power, he's going to stop them. He says, Though I've afflicted you by letting them oppress you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break this yoke off you and I will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. Now he's turning his attention to Nineveh itself. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. That might be scarier actually. That might be the, 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 the peak scary moment of this book. Then he turns again back to Judah. Behold, up on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This is a microcosm of the whole book here. Though they're at full strength, their day is ending. He's against their evil. 
But you know what? Look, a messenger is coming who delivers good news. In context, in immediate context, I think the good news is just, look, the bully is about, his reign is about to be over. This is partial. This is partial. Though Assyria would ultimately be taken down by the Medes and the Babylonians, Babylon itself is going to later oppress Judah. Actually, Babylon, uh, Judah is going to get taken into captivity by another big bully nation named Babylon. So whatever God is saying here through Nahum, it's, 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 it's a partial thing that's kind of giving us a picture of a, of a bigger reality that's at play. Reading verse 15, your mind naturally wonders, like, is there more than this? Is there more than God just killing a nation? Like, is that, is that all there is to this good news? Like, like more violence? Somebody dying? There is. There is more. The same language gets picked up in Isaiah 52.7. Let's read that. This, this section of Isaiah was probably written all after, after the exile, after... Israel's back in the land, and he says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. So Isaiah takes the exact wording from Nahum, he blows it out a little bit, and he says, This is now going to describe the goodness and peace of the coming reign of God as the rightful king. It invites us to start thinking in a bigger way about what it's going to look like for this good news to come to bear. It's not just about ending Assyria. There's something more. It's tied to the very character and reign of God in the world. You know who else picked up on this good news and kingdom imagery? Classic Bible answer. Give it to me. Jesus. He did, in fact. He did, in fact. Mark 1, 14 through 15, he kind of gives Je- what, what, Jesus, what was Jesus all about? After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God, and, he, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. And the implication here is that Jesus is ultimately this one with beautiful feet. That we're talking about a messenger coming with good news. It's a shadow that points to the reality of Jesus. He brings the best news. He delivers humanity's only hope for peace between humanity and God and between humanity and itself. In Jesus the mystery of God's long-suffering, gracious, patient love and his protective, sin-limiting love finds its fullest expression. As you read the prophets and you're like, okay, I'm getting all these categories and I'm just not sure, well, which is it, God? Are you more like the God in Jonah or are you more like the God in Nahum? So the answer is look at Jesus. And you'll see exactly how all of these characteristics mingle together and come out in the form of one person and one coherent story. On the cross, the God-man himself died for all who have earned his judgment. 
He put sin to death by taking it into himself and dying. He righteously judged sin once and for all. And at this very same time, by doing this, he made the most radical offer in all of human history to sinners. The most radical offer imaginable. Jesus says, though you have done nothing to earn it, though you could do nothing ever to earn it, I'll take your sin and I'll give you my righteousness. And not only that, we've talked about this before in this series too, it's, it's not only that reality that we get declared righteous by God, but he says, while he's reigning now, in part, he's coming back in full to finally put an end to every inch of darkness and suffering that we experience. This whole reality of this mixed reality of, yes, life's a blessing, life's beautiful, it's wonderful, but it's also full of suffering and anguish. He says that is only for a time longer. And again, Jesus will draw that line and say, no further sin, no further death, none of it, not an inch further. So Jesus becomes the one who takes kind of these incomprehensible elements of some of these prophets, and he says, look, here, look at me. Here's how it all works out. You want to know how these things slot together, fit together? It's right here, and it's on the cross. I'm going to, as Josh loves to say, he's, Jesus says, I'm going to be judge and judged. That's the answer. That's the answer. So there's one more time that this phrase gets picked up. And it's in Romans. You guys probably are familiar with this passage. 10, 14 through 15. Paul says, how then will they call on him whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. He brings our boy Nahum back. And he says, now though, it's not just that context and it's not just Jesus as the one exclusively who brings the good news, but he says, actually, the whole way that this message of God's grace and love and forgiveness, the end of suffering, the end of death, future hope, the way this message gets transferred is through people. And we actually all get the privilege of being these good news carriers to the world, to our friends to our family, to our enemies. To a world that's dying of thirst, desperately needing some good news. God's entrusted that to us. He's entrusted that to us. There's good news we get to declare of a good God who promises peace, and not just the end of this skirmish and on to the next one, then I'll deal with that one, but a, a final dealing with every bit of it. A God who has done everything to invite us to him. He's cleared every obstacle. For the worst sinner you could possibly imagine, and for you, who we normally don't think of in those terms, and for me, 
who is equally as in need of it. The good news at its heart is that Jesus loves you. And every implication of him loving you is is true and it's real. So the message of Nahum in the end, I think it drives us to consider the news good enough to take some risks in sharing with people. But we've also got to consider our people worthy enough to take it to them. We've got to be moved by this love of God. Think it's real. Think it's actually good news for the world. And then we've got to get over our pride, get over our embarrassment, get over our insecurity, get over our fear of saying the wrong thing, get over our fear of being held accountable to what we say we believe, and take it to people who are in desperate need. They're starving. They're thirsting for it. And God has entrusted us with that responsibility. Shall we pray? Now. Yeah.